Welcome back to the Investing in the Girl podcast brought to you by Fun Caliber. We're considering all things Japan today as our guest provides valuable insights into Japan's evolving economic landscape, its resilience, and the investment opportunities it offers. I'm Stacey West, and today I'm joined by Sam Perry, manager of the Pictay Japanese Equity Selection Fund. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Now, I wanted to start with something that we've discussed uh, on this podcast before, which is this widespread view that the world is deglobalizing. Is this a view or trend that you're seeing in maybe from Asia and Japan? Do you think that we are, in fact, deglobalizing? Uh, actually, funny enough, no, no, I don't. Um, I think a lot of the idea that we are deglobalizing is really kind of based in our uh, recent history of Brexit and Trump, um, where Trump, obviously, with America first, uh, was making all sorts of noises about trade wars. He was fantastically ineffectual uh, in every sense there. I mean, the uh, NAFTA to the USMCA is almost a direct copy of NAFTA 1 with almost no difference. Uh, the chorus deal for um, Korean steel uh, was going to be you know, touted widely by Trump as being a magnificent achievement. All it did was allow... GM and Ford to sell up to 50,000 cars in Korea. Um, they sell less than 10,000, so it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Um, and of course, Brexit, while it feels like it's had a deglobalizing impact, the whole premise of Brexit, of course, is greater globalization, that we'll be having bilateral trade deals absolutely everywhere. Um, it hasn't happened, but that was the plan. Biden, on the other hand, while he's not uh, going for a sort of direct deglobalization, has actually been much more impactful. So the impacts we've had seen on China and on the Chinese technology, uh, some responses from China as well, have actually had more of an impact than anything we saw in previous years. Uh, despite the fact that on, you know, you're not having 25% tariffs being threatened on European autos, nonetheless, it feels like a lot more has happened. So what's the impact of that? It's interesting, we can actually really see what the impact is in Japan. So we've had conversations with, for instance, Hitachi. They're effectively now firewalling their uh, elevators and uh, escalators business, which is in China, for China. That's going to be it now. And so this is kind of a, something we're seeing again and again, that you're getting, rather than reshoring, friendship. People see there is a geopolitical issue with China, so they're going, okay, where well, we're going to build our plant in India or Thailand. But the really important thing is that the genie's well out of the bottle. Um, so oil is going to come from wherever oil is. Minerals are going to come from wherever minerals are. When we're looking at consumer electronics, for instance, there's a reason that we've still got a lot of containers coming from the west coast of China, sorry, the east coast of China, to the west coast of the U.S., because that's where all the electronics are. Think about an iPhone. Can you build an iPhone in the US? Of course you can build an iPhone in the US. The extra cost would be maybe 50 bucks. I did this calculation a couple of years ago, but it's probably still about that. So why don't we? Well, the reason is it's, it's people. Um, if you look at Pegatron, their plant, which makes a third of Apple's phones, about the same as a sold in the US, they have 77,000 people in their factory. And the head of Foxconn, one of their competitors, they've reduced to some extent the number of people they have, but they've still got this, you know, iPhone City has 200,000 employees in it. 
Um, and the head of technology automation at Foxconn said, well, the turnaround and the shelf life of phones is so short, we simply can't automate it that much. It would be wildly cost ineffective to do that. So you need people. So if Megatron has 77,000 people, if you put that into the US, you'd need 100,000, 120,000 Americans because of different shift hours and so forth. Where are you going to find 120,000 Americans to go to one factory? Biggest factory in the US, the Boeing one, may not be the biggest now, but so it was, 30,000 people. Uh, the Pentagon has 23,000 people in it. You can't put 125,000 Americans into one factory, you know, coming from a small pool of people. Foxconn has dormitories. You're not going to have that in the US. So are we likely to see a reshoring from, of Apple's iPhones from China to the US? No, we're not. Are we seeing a French shoring? Yes, we are. So we've got new factories opening up in India and so forth. Um, it's, you know, it comes out to people, it comes out to transport, it comes out to logistics. Uh, supply chains are the supply chains. Uh, so I don't think we're going to see de-globalization. We are seeing a shuffling of supply chains. And we're seeing that both, you know, we can see it more globally, but we can see it very much on the individual companies we talk to um, in Japan. I don't even want to think about the traffic in America trying to get that many people to one factory. <laughs> I mean, there is actually one interesting comparison, and that is, you know, some of the big college football stadiums, they take over 100,000 people. But like Foxconn's um, dormitory town, everybody's living there. They're just walking there. They're not trying to drive there. I think the biggest car park in the world is supposed to be the one in Edmonton, which is some shopping mall. That's only 30,000 cars. I mean, yeah, the traffic just doesn't even begin to make sense. No, no, it does not. Um, <laughs> but that's, um, I like the way that you rephrased a reshuffling because that makes a lot more sense and is slightly less worrying than thinking about de-globalizing. As you said, the genie seems to be out of the bottle on that one, but it's still a topic that's thrown around um, well, very frequently. Think, yeah, I mean, another way, again, I'm going to use a bit of an American comparison, but the, the, the theory is that the average American woman has seven pairs of jeans. They cost 20, 25 bucks a piece if you, you know, buy them from, from, from Walmart. Um, if you were to make a pair of jeans uniquely in America, so you're going to use American denim, American fittings, and American seamstress, your retail price would be more like $200. Uh, the, the actual cost of just the sewing is, is a big difference. So, you know, if you look at East Asia, um, then the cost per hour for seamstress is, say, $25. Cost per hour in South Asia is more like sort of $15. Cost per hour in Ohio, I can't remember why I got my Ohio figure, but I did. Um, an Ohio seamstress would be more like um, kind of $140. It, it, you just can't do it. So, I mean, your labor cost alone would be something like $50 for your American pair of jeans. You know, there, there's, there's a reason we outsource this stuff. Before we get too fixated on <laughs> our kind of first topic that I wanted to talk about. Let's shift gears slightly to the economic environment in Japan. So at odds with the rest of the world, it almost seems with interest rates are still negative, inflation at just over 2%, uh, which is welcome in a country that has had deflation for more than three decades. Why is Japan so different? And what does it mean for your Japanese companies? Uh, uh, this is one of those signs where I have to say, well, Japan is different because we didn't start from here. Um, where we started with Japan was we have to go back to the bubble. So we have the bubble in late 90s, sorry, late 80s, that collapses into the early 80s, early 90s rather. You then have a series of policy missteps 
Uh, the banks aren't cleaned up. You have zombie loans everywhere. And effectively, you, you have a bad bank situation that could have happened in the West in 2008, but didn't, largely because we could see what happened in Japan. So 2008, you know, Bernanke and people all around the world looked to actually liquidate these bad loans as fast as possible. In Japan in the 90s, the reverse happened. The, the zombie loans just stumbled on and on and on. And what the bad banks did is what bad banks always do, and that is they yank credit from healthy borrowers. So at that point, the healthy borrowers are going, right, we can't trust the banks. We're just going to have to dash for cash. Cash is king. Now, the problem with that is that if everybody's going for cash and you're seeing that you know, transactions in the economy are crunching down and slowing because nobody's investing, nobody wants to buy anything, nobody wants to do anything, that just makes deflation worse and worse and worse. Now, what that means, once you enter into deflation, you then have a new problem, and that is that cash is now going to give you a real return, so in other words, a return after the effects of inflation or deflation, for free. There's no risk. It's cash. So this means that now you're in a position of, well, why should I invest? It doesn't make any sense. I may as well just sit there with a large pool of cash. And there's certainly no point in getting debt to invest in machinery or whatever. I'll just stick with the cash. So that was the position we were in. That's the, the classic deflationary spiral that we saw actually in the 1930s as well. So let's fast forward then to 2012-2013. Um, Abe's coming to power. He puts Kuroda in his Bank of Japan governor. And now Kuroda launches QQE, qualitative and quantitative easing, deliberately targeting the idea that inflation is happening in the economy. Because if that happens, everything changes. Because now cash is no longer giving you a real return risk-free. It's a wasting asset. So you need to get rid of it. You need to invest it. You need to actually get a return from it. So all of a sudden, everything we saw in the last 10 years reverses. And now we have completely the opposite happening. We have a dash to re-leverage. We need to get the debt in and we need to use up this cash. We need to return it to shareholders. We need to invest. We need to grow. So now we're seeing a completely different situation from what we are seeing in Europe and the US, where, yes, they've got inflation, but that inflation is, is, is really very significant. And is, we've seen rates go up and up and up and up and up. And now people are looking at actually substantial real rates coming along. So they really will feel the pinch. Whereas in Japan, we've still got, as I say, very low interest rates. Um, and we're seeing inflation just pick up gently, which means we have a negative inflation, real inflation, sorry, negative real rates. And that means that the compulsion to invest is going to be quite high because otherwise you won't make a return. So that's why it's a great thing for Japan. It's, and it's a fantastic thing for the Japanese equity market. And the... Japanese stock market has been one of the best performers of this year as well. We're turning almost 18% in yen terms, which is more than double the U.S. stock market. In Can dollars. these in dollars? Can these good times continue for investors? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the reason I interjected with the dollar point is, of course, actually that in dollars, the S&P at 16% is actually rather better than what we're seeing in dollars from the yen, and similarly better than the European stock markets, and obviously a lot better than the UK stock market, which is um, down a smidge in dollar terms and up barely in, in, in sterling. Um, and I think there we have to point to the impact on NASDAQ, and that's up really a third uh, internet. So actually, we're not racing ahead in Japan. But on the other hand, we have a lot of tailwinds, which other people don't have. We have the tailwind just mentioned of this you know, massive economic stimulus, which is effectively happening. 
not stimulus coming from the government, not stimulus coming from Bank of Japan, but just the actual overall shape of the economy is that strongly favoring investment and growth, which it never has done before. So we had a Bank of Japan deputy governor talking about the green shoots are finally here, and it's been a long time coming. Um, so that's one part. The other part is that you know we've we've we're getting an interesting dynamic happening here, but at the same time as you're getting this inflation pushing companies to invest more and get higher returns, you're also getting strong pressure from the Tokyo Stock Exchange, from the Ministry of Finance, and the administration for companies to make themselves more efficient and to push more money back to shareholders. So that's going to be a great dynamic as well, because now you know, the easiest way for a company to increase its return on equity, so look at the sort of the source of capital between debt and equity, and then how much profit is it making as its return on equity. Well, one of the impacting, one of the most impactful things they can do is just increase leverage, because then you, you should look at the return on equity effectively returning your assets. So how much profit are you making from all your factories? And then consider how it's finance, namely the leverage. So if you really want to increase your returns quite returns on equity very easily, just reduce your cash. It's kind of as simple as that, and you leverage. So this is being, you know, you're getting a drive for this both from the overall economy and a drive for this from top down as well. You're also getting a drive for this from the bottom up, from us, from investors. Because we keep on banging on the door and saying, you know, you're sitting on a huge amount of cash. Why aren't you actually handing it back or doing something useful? And here, again, we come to a matter of time, and, and now it's about management. The guys who were desperate to deleverage and hoard cash were the guys who were around in the chief executive's chair, the chief financial officer's chair, in the late 1990s. They're retired. You know, this is a cohort of uh, chief executives who now pretty much don't exist. So we now have people with very different ideas about what should be happening who are now in the chairs of as chief executive and chief financial officer and chairman, who are actually looking at the pile of cash and going, yeah, we do need to get rid of this. We need to hand it back to people unless we can do something useful. You mentioned a few different points of within Japanese companies themselves and how these companies are managed has undergone a, a lot of changes in, in recent years, some of which we've talked about before with more women being encouraged into boards and uh, companies being asked to give money back to shareholders in the form of dividends. And now I, I guess that these teams are also having to raise prices for the first time potentially ever or deal with the rising costs of running these companies. So how are the companies coping? Have there been some knock-on effects of these, these changes? I, th I think we can describe it in a way as quiet delight. Um, I mean, companies we've been talking to who've, who've, who've said, they've been saying for years, and we say, what are you doing with your pricing? They say, well, we can lift prices in the US, that's fine. And we can lift prices in Europe, that's fine. And we've been able to lift prices here, there, and everywhere, but not at home. We just simply can't get price rises through. That's a real drag. We're having to increase efficiency, cut costs, but we just can't push the prices at home. Whereas now they're just turning around and saying, yes, we can increase prices in the US, we can increase prices in Europe, and we can increase, increase prices at home. And these price increases are sticking. So a uh, conversation we had with a cardboard manufacturer recently, you know, they're the guys who make this really heavy-duty packaging for car parts and stuff. So not thinking so much of Amazon parcel-type cardboard, but really heavy-duty stuff. And they've been you know, saying, yeah, we've been able to get two price rises through. Um, the Asahi Beer Group, which has San Miguel, Peroni, 
um, Greenwich Mean Time, my local my local brewers, um, they've all, they've been able to lift prices at home as well. You know, and this is kind of like the first time in forever uh, when the uh, this is exactly an ice cream manufacturer, and they have this one particular product, which is you know everybody knows it. it's kind of the the standard ice cream everybody thinks about uh, uh, from their childhood. And he actually made a public apology that he had to raise prices for the first time in something like three decades. Um, but yeah, the price increases are going through, they're sticking, and it's becoming normalized. And you know, this is a this is a truly extraordinary development for Japan. I mean, it's certainly not something that's the first time I've seen it uh, since I've been following the market for what, 26, seven years ago. I mean, you've painted quite a optimistic, rosy picture talking about Japan, which slightly contradicts something that I heard a few weeks ago, which was someone saying that Japan is one of the most inefficient equity markets. Do you you think that this is true or is it just it's under-resourced and researched so it appears this way? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's definitely under-resourced, under-researched. So the S&P 500, you know, Pretty much a third of the total market has over 25 analyst recommendations. Um, about over half the market has more than more than 20. Um, look at Japan, and over nearly two thirds have less than seven recommendations. Now, does that make it efficient or not? So, there's the topics 500 compared to the S&P 500. So, you know, same number of stocks. We're talking the biggest stocks in the, in the index, and that's kind of our investment universe type thing. Does that make it more or less efficient? Well, um, you, you've got some deep and knotty problems there, namely, you know, what is what do we mean by efficiency? Classically, academically, we mean that information goes through the market's pricing absolutely automatically, very, very quickly. Uh, so there's no chance of arbitraging on information. That's kind of academically what it's supposed to mean by efficiency. Even, however, even in a perfectly efficient market, then there's still lots of scope to make money. Um, I mean, think about it this way. If uh, an analyst comes up and he's an absolute genius and knows exactly what's happening in Toyota for the next three years, he absolutely calls it perfectly. He's the only analyst in town and he's shouting it from the rooftop. If nobody else is actually buying and selling Toyota, nothing happens. You know, the price doesn't change. Why? Because it's, it's, the market is price discovery. It's about trying for us to sit there, weigh it up, and think how much are we willing to pay for what we can see. Now, this still leaves us opportunity, even with perfect efficiency, because if you have everybody looking at Toyota going, the analyst is right, short term, this is bad or good. Well, in the long term, we may say, actually, the reaction that these people are making on Toyota share price, let's say it's bad, so it's dropping. You think, ah, well, actually, if we're going to look out 10 years, we think this is good. So that gives them gives us an opportunity. So, I mean, for us, we're pretty long-term investors, and we like to try and Effectively, our view on all the all, on all the big stocks, you know, and all the stocks we follow, is constantly evolving, constantly changing. We may not be doing very much inside the firm, but then when an opportunity does appear, we can then say, right, now we have an opportunity. It's you know, we've seen the market move a long way from our fair value. Now we can actually move into this. So, at March 2020, when you had the COVID collapse in the markets. That gave us a fantastic opportunity to buy all sorts of stocks that we wouldn't normally be able to buy because we thought they were too far away from fair value, or sorry, too close to fair value or above fair value, and all of a sudden we had an opportunity. So is it efficient? I don't know. It's certainly under-researched, but 
you know, whether or not it's efficient doesn't really matter for an active manager, just a matter of time scales. Well, that's what I was, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. Um, being long-term then, is it more a matter of presenting opportunities individually as they come and less about, as you said, the, the inefficiency or efficiency of the market and more of these individual stocks and the, the process that you're doing for the fund as the active manager? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're very much a bottom-up fund. Uh, it's very, very rare that something happens which makes us take, you know, that we shall move the whole fund in this direction. That very, very rarely happens. Um, so usually it is, yes, it's about, you know, where are the opportunities at the moment? Um, it's also why we don't have much of a style bias because we don't really mind whether we think the valuation opportunity comes because the market doesn't understand the balance sheet of the company, so classical value investing, or if it doesn't understand you know, what's likely to happen in the future with its revenues, classical growth investing. It, we're just looking for where that valuation mismatch is. And sometimes it's, it's a classic deep value type investment. The market simply doesn't understand the balance sheet or valuing it right. And sometimes it's because the market's just got the growth prospects completely wrong. And that's where the opportunity is. So yeah, it's, it's basically, it's, we're just, you sit there and you wait for the opportunities to happen and you wait for stocks to actually reflect what we believe is their fair value. Well, that brings me on nicely to my, my last question is that looking at your portfolio, you have a couple of car manufacturers in the top 10. And we spoke to a, another Japanese manager um, last year who had sold out of these types of companies because just felt that they were too far behind on the EV curve, so to speak, um, and, and didn't see the opportunity. So why do you have your kind of conviction in the car manufacturer uh, industry? And can you just kind of elaborate, give us an example about what you're seeing? Well, this, yeah, this, this definitely brings us on to the idea of efficiency and markets and opportunities. Okay, so I mean, what, the implication from your previous question about efficiency was that the US is a really efficient market, in which case we need to discuss Tesla, since we're on cars. You know, that's got, uh, what, an $800 billion market cap, give or take, even now, or even after it's dropped quite a lot. And it was at something like $1.5 trillion. Okay, well, let's have a look at the big three Japanese manufacturers. You've got... Um, Toyota, Honda, and Nissan, all together, that's less than $400 billion worth of market cap. Um, if we chuck in the, uh, the big three US, that gives you another $150 billion. Chuck in the remaining European auto manufacturers of any given size, so Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volkswagen, Renault, and that's going to give you another $200 billion. So you're still less. Putting all those guys together, you are still less than Tesla. Now, the joke has always been, you know, which comes first? Does Tesla learn how to make cars before the other manufacturers learn how to make batteries? Well, you know, this is the accusation that your uh, previous correspondent clearly levied at Toyota and the other. Fine, fine. They, they have a point. They definitely have a point. Um, you know, the, you, the Japanese manufacturers have been slow off the mark. Nissan less so. Obviously, the leaf was very early. Um, but Toyota notoriously stuck with the nickel batteries for much longer than anybody else who moved on to lithium, stuck with hybrid for much longer. Now, Toyota's response is, well, we're making a powertrain for everywhere. So if you're in, um, you know, if, you, if you're in, let's say, um, South Africa, do you necessarily want full battery or 
actually, do you need to be able to carry some fuel with you? You know, the great thing about the internal combustion engine is that gasoline is an incredibly rich power source in terms of density of, density of energy. Um, so, and so you might, want a, you might want a full ICE, or you might want a hybrid, or you might want full battery. So they're saying, well, we're going to offer all of them. They have ways of producing enough efficiencies to make that kind of work on a production basis. So the next generation architecture is something they've been pursuing for years. But at the end of the day, you know, let's hone in on that battery point. I mean, the world is large, the developed world is moving towards battery as the number one, as the number one uh, power source. Um, and we have got information on that. So you know, Toyota had this battery technology day, which um, I thought, I've got to say, absolutely blew me away. So their new um, kind of crossover SUV, BZ4X, catchy name, um, has a, uh, uh, we think, 600 kilometer, no, a, uh, about 500 kilometer range. Um, so that's what kind of 300-ish miles, isn't it? Um, their next generation uh, battery, which is going to be launched in, I think, two years, is going to effectively double that up to 1,000 kilometers. So this is assuming you're sticking it into the same. You can then double that up again when you move to their second stage solid state battery, which is coming two years after that. So then you're going to be looking at um, 1,500 plus kilometer range for the same vehicle. Now, you know, this is pretty extraordinary, even more extraordinary than that, then these, then these solid state batteries will move to full charge. You can take it from 10% to full charge inside of 10 minutes. Um, exactly how the infrastructure works and be able to supply you know, that sort of wattage, I'm not sure, but you know, this is the sort of technological development you're seeing. So uh, have they been behind the curve? Yeah, they've been behind the curve, for sure. Um, that probably was a mistake they made in terms of sticking with nickel for too long, sticking with plugins and hybrids for too long. Um, do they have the technology? Yes, they do. Um, so have they learned how to make a battery? I really think they have. Well, that has been so fascinating and um i have definitely taken up enough of your time so thank you very much for talking through a, a whole spectrum of different topics and areas i really do appreciate it it was incredibly interesting well thank you very much for having me on Pictay Japanese Equity Selection is a high-conviction strategy which invests in large and medium-sized businesses for the long term and offers investors excellent exposure to a country in the world whose recovery may prove a success story in years to come. To learn more about the Pictay Japanese Equity Selection Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm -hmm.